0: Welcome to the Auto Supply Chain Profits Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future in the auto supply chain. I'm Jan Griffiths, your co-host and producer. I'm Kathy Fisher, your podcast
1: host. Our mission is to help automotive manufacturers recognize, prepare for, and profit from whatever comes next in the auto supply chain. I'm Terry Onika, your podcast host. We'll be giving you best practices and key supply chain insights from industry leaders.
0: Because the auto supply chain is where the money is. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of Auto Supply Chain Profits podcast. Uh, Let's go to my co-host this morning, Terry Onika. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. How about you? Good. What have you been up to?
1: Well, I got a couple of exciting things coming up. I'm going to be moderating a panel of women in EDI at the Odette conference next month. And then I'm also going to be moderating a panel with BYD and Toyota talking about is just-in-time inventory behind the times. So I'm really excited about that. That's two companies, a very successful startup and Toyota. So I'm really anxious to hear the contrast between the two and their strategies.
0: BYD is everywhere. I was in Mexico in the summer, and BYD is all over Mexico. I was in the UK; they're all over uh, Europe and the UK. I can't believe it. I mean, BYD is just it's just taking over. So you got BYD and Toyota on stage at the same yes. time. That'll be yes. all kinds of fun. Absolutely. Woo. And I'm going to be at Reuters too this year. I'm going to be moderating a session with the president of Karma Automotive that I am very much looking forward to because I just saw him at TEDx Detroit. So it really is conference season is in full bore in the Metro Detroit area. That's for sure. Absolutely. Today, let's take a trip across the pond, shall we? Let's go to the UK. And today we are thrilled to welcome to the show... Anthony Emery. Now, Anthony has a fabulous background for the role that he's in today. And let me give you just a snapshot, and you guys should check him out on LinkedIn. But he's got experience with DHL as operations manager in automotive. He was the general manager and UK director for the Brink Group, which is also an automotive related company. He was a plant manager with Toyota Shusho. So now, you know, we've got logistics background, we've got manufacturing background. And if that wasn't enough, then he's head of logistics operations for McLaren Automotive. That ought to be all kinds of fun. Head of supply chain for Euromaster, getting into the aftermarket. And now he leads the aftermarket group. He is supply chain and logistics director for Finia for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Anthony, welcome to the show.
2: How I Thank you. That is a long intro and it's, it makes me realize how many places I work now in my logistics career.
0: Well, but I love it because there's so much there, right? I love it when we see people with a really strong cross-functional background because simply stated, you're just better able to make great business decisions. You don't make functional decisions. You make business decisions. And that's what we love about your background. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us about Finia. FINIA is not a name I'm familiar with, but then as I was doing some research, I saw the Borg Warner connection, which of course is where I started my career. So tell us a bit more about FINIA.
2: Technically, we're brand new. Jan. So FINIA is around about 110 days old now. We've spun off from Borg Warner. So we now are our own legal entity. We remain effectively doing what we did in the aftermarket sector. We incorporate the brands of Delphi, Delco Remy, and Hartridge. And we supply a fuel system um, and aftermarket solutions to the automotive sector. So we span the globe. We've got offices from the east to the west and everywhere in the middle. We have our HDV sort of uh, set up the aftermarket in Warwick, which is where I'm based in the UK. And yeah, it's, it's a really exciting time. We, we kind of get to take everything we had from Borg Warner as a really good platform uh, for what we do as an organization, everything we do with our people, our product, our technology, and we get to build on that as Finia. We can literally have this really rich history and then add exactly what we want to add to it. And this is the journey that we're on right now.
0: I love that. And you know, this aftermarket, I was in aftermarket for a little bit. I touched aftermarket when I was in the brake business and I was in a procurement role. And that is such a different animal, right? Yeah. What are some of the pain points, the challenges of aftermarket as opposed to direct material? Broad strokes.
2: For me, it's. So it's possibly even more exciting than the drumbeat you get from OEM production. So OEM, you know, you get provided with a forecast. You can really plan ahead. It's all production based, and we have these great big outlooks. There's a continued stability and safety, so can be controlled, and everything can be accounted for. From an OES and after sales perspective, it's always really tricky. So you try and hit an ideal forecast accuracy, and then sales go up, sales go down global geopolitical events coming along and, and really sideswipe you. And that has a huge impact on your demand patterns, your algorithms, and, and your impacts. You're um, stuck, obviously, at the end of the day. You can end up with too much, too little. When you're dealing with, you know, lead times for raw materials to, to finish goods, you can look at anything from 12 to 18 weeks, plus shipping, and then with it being product dependent, it's really hard to control. So the challenges aren't necessarily like you have in OEM when you're working line back it's really about having that predictive foresight as well as working off your existing demand and planning and forecasting. So we can gather as much data as we like from around the car park. We can see what vehicles are on the road, how old they are. But it, it remains an ongoing challenge and you need to support that by obviously developing and um, clearly skilled work but also the systems you on alongside of that.
1: Anthony, I'm really curious with all your background and in the aftermarket work that you're doing at Finia, as well as I know you do some production as well, too. What kind of strategy do you have for digitization of your supply chain?
2: It's tough. And it is a strategy that moves continually. We have to, um, as a company, now that we are Finia, we're developing a roadmap that looks towards Critical business outcomes um, through the supply chain transformation, everything from you know the, the purchasing to the physical logistics, but also looking at how we implement a multi-year integrated plan that actually is led by our supply chain strategy. So at the moment, we, we we've got some legacy systems in place across the plants, um, across um, our offices. So we are currently utilizing um, a partnership with Salonis um, who are looking at data mining um, across our existing systems and it's proving really useful for our reporting for some of our foresight at the moment. Each plan that I went to shows that multi-tiered organizations have different systems. So trying to get out of um, uh, almost a silo way of working, sometimes depending on the operation, depending if it's manufacturing, supply chain, etc. It's very hard to use one system end to end, which presents obviously a huge challenge. So from a digitization point of view, we need to look at how we expand not only our system capability from an individual plan or an individual office, but technology that can bring that together. So looking at the whole process end to end is something that is is, from my past and my career, it's so always been one of those things like, I want to see the start, I want to see the end of everything in between and I want to marry up. And so it's very hard to do that sometimes, depending on what sort of business model you operate, depending on how many countries you're in. So our IT team now, we've taken um, some changes within the organization and board. There's, there's a real push on information. There's a real push on technology. But it's definitely um, our strategy to try and be able to link up these systems because it provides not only a clear view for us to, to support the integrated business planning. It actually allows us to be more efficient. It allows us to be more sustainable and it allows us to stay ahead of, of where we want to be. So it's, it's very early stages. But again, the systems we're looking at in the old, you'll be aware that obviously we've had discussions with the likes of QAD and, and other companies to really actually say, can we match up all these little pieces to give ourselves an even bigger view of where we want to be?
1: Yeah, that enterprise visibility is so key right now. And, and really getting away from manual efforts, which a lot of companies do, to really get that visibility across the organization. There's no way you can do it without technology. You, can, you just can't do it fast enough, especially as quickly as we're moving in the industry and moving to the EVs. And I'm sure even in the aftermarket, you feel it with older cars out there that you're going to still have to support. I I just, I can't imagine how you could do it anyway, but really the strategy you're doing.
2: It's ever evolving. We still use spreadsheets sometimes. And it is a stable part of the business in the first to be able to assess data sometimes. But now actually, instead of just saying, we're going to move, we're actually going to say, we're going to move. But in three, four, five, six years' time, this is also where we need to be. So we have to back that up from a resource and capability point of view as well.
0: Oh, you mentioned the word spreadsheet. I'm surprised Terry Onika didn't just come <laughs> out of her chair and come completely unglued. You mentioned spreadsheets and she loses it. Anthony, she loses it. It's embarrassing. She
2: lost she's lost she's lost it with me before. She's keeping it cool because we're being recorded. I think you're right. She knows I aid them. She knows I like live data, so we will move away from that. We will have the system.
0: Step one is uh, admitting you got a problem, right? So kudos to you, Anthony, for, for admitting it, yeah. right? Because a lot of people, they use spreadsheets and they're like, yeah, but I'm never going to admit to it. I know it happens.
2: I've got guys in the team who are addicted to macros and and, and VLOOKUPs, so we need to kind of break their habits.
0: Admit it and not defend it. Let's go a little deeper into this idea of, of demand planning and scenario planning. I, I cannot get my head around... How you do that in aftermarket, I just, I, 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 I can't. What, what are some of the, the issues that you're grappling with there? I mean, digitization of the supply chain is a very broad, broad statement, but when you start to really dial that in, go a little deeper for us, Anthony, in demand planning and scenario planning. What kinds of data do you have to include in this process?
2: So we utilize a very open communication network between our teams. And we look at three things. So we look at our demand, we look at our consensus, and then we look at our sales forecast alongside the financial forecast of where we need to be. When you are dealing with an OEM style supply, you can you can forecast down to ski level parts. You can do it to the nut, the bulb, to the the injector and everything in between. When you look at the aftermarket, you look at product families and super families. Because that's where the market drives you. And that's that whole part of the integrated business planning. we go from, you know, a reactive stage to a, an anticipation stage. Building it then into the business plan itself, we really have to kind of say, okay, we know that diesel product is still a really big seller for us. So we then take the family. And we we'll also this part from the gear is super important to us in part in terms of our strategy. It's super important to our customers because we still have people all across, you know, the world buying it. And then we can sort of focus to certain areas. So we'll say, you know, Central Eastern Europe will take this particular product or the Nordics and 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 so on and so forth will take other very specific products. Then we have to look at actually what part is that is an injector. And as you can imagine, cars all over the world have multiple pieces that are sometimes one mil difference. They might have a slightly different plug on them. So hitting that forecast, if we can hit above 50% forecast accuracy, it's great. If we can hit 60, 70, 80, it's been a brilliant month because we are hitting a moving target whilst bobbing up and down on a boat in a rough sea. So pushing that through continued open communication is the only way we went at it because even the algorithms can get it wrong. Um, and uh, again, how do we give ourselves the solution without waiting for something to come along or spending you know, a lot of time implementing that?
1: When you look at today's environment, sustainability plays a huge topic. And one of the things that I always think about is in the operations level at the plant, there's a lot of things that we could be doing every day that work towards helping the plan to be more sustainable for the organization. The more efficient we are, uh, you know, the better we're going to be at sustainability. What are you doing at Finia in this area for sustainability?
2: Well, we do. So sustainability, it touches so many things. And when people think sustainability, they think about the environment. And at Finia, yes, we have an environmental statement. We will look on a global model that actually allows local accountabilities. So our commitment as a corporation is to say, we're going to do our best for the environment. As a company, we also know that worldwide operations can't be controlled by one or two people sat in an office. So we have to consider all the impacts that our manufacturing activities do. We have to consider all of our logistics, our supply chain, and We, again, looked at that, not only on a global, but a local level. So we can sit there as a team in one location and we can identify different potential environmental impacts that are posed by that one location. We can then come together as a group and discuss it and say, actually, we seem to have a common theme in plants in Mexico and then Romania and then China. And then they might have something like that. There might be something completely different. We then utilize those groups. We get together and we promote. There's so many things that we know we can do without even thinking about it to, to help alongside that. So whether that's the efficient use of natural resources, whether it's energy, emissions from our, you know, our carbon footprint, our transport, minimizing things like water usage and being able to protect biodiversity and cultural resources in and around the plants that we, we um, operate throughout the world. We also then look to now our carbon footprint when it comes to transport. And we work very closely with some brilliant 3PLs who are utilising, again, new technology and trucks. We're making less flights, less journeys, but doing better milk runs, even down to packaging. So there's multiple legislations coming in across the world where we look at actually this particular type of product has to change the packaging. We have to change how many we ship. Um, So whether that's creating smaller boxes, so we take up less room on a container, meaning we can fit more product in how we dispose of certain products within our product market and how we support those environmental legislations. We decide, we take it at local levels and then we come together as a global community to commit and maintain the environmental management system. So like I say, it's not just about sustainability in supply chain, it's sustainability in product marketing, it's sustainability in manufacturing the product, it's sustainability about actually how do we deal with it afterwards? And and how do we give that back and make sure that key stakeholders in the business externally and and most importantly, people within the world know that we're actually trying to make a change?
1: So tying sustainability back into your current project of where you're trying to manage demand, I'm sure you're trying to right-size inventory. When you go for justification of your project, are you highlighting that this really contributes towards sustainability? Is it to that point yet in the environment? I wonder if people are really thinking about this when they're looking at projects and the impact on the environment as a reason to do the project.
2: I think it's definitely more conscious, especially when you see um, maybe an aging workforce making their way out and a younger workforce coming in, it comes at the, at the front of their mind. So I've just come back from rural to supply Europe and sustainability was one of the key topics of discussion throughout almost every presentation. and. Again, utilizing systems in that arena is is a great idea. Saying it is a great idea, but acting on it is very, very hard at the moment, I think, because so many people want to be sustainable, but they don't know how to be sustainable. So embedding that as part of a company, you have to work with sustainability-specific roles. You have to have people who look to actually think, you know what, sustainability also equals cost saving. And so in a lot of measures, and I don't think that companies always think, actually, ah, if we if we shipped more products in one container and we had less fresh air, that means we can get more and it costs us less because we're actually making less runs. So sustainability has a big impact on profit um, and cash flow within companies. So I think people need to make sure they're not only doing better for the environment, but for themselves, because the more money they make, the more we can put back in. And looking at what we do at the moment, we do work with agencies to look at our CO2 emissions. So we have a monitor that allows us to see, by the product, what the carbon footprint is for that product when it ships singularly by hundreds, by thousands. And again, through our packaging itself, its disposal and that sustainability piece actually then extends to people like myself. So how many times do I travel the office. How in times do I work hybrid? When I go on company travel, do I fly? Do I take the train? I took the train to Brussels. So I had a 96% reduction in carbon emissions through my journey. And for me, it was about, actually, I'd like to spend some time doing some work on the train, be able to, to relax and, and then do something differently to flying. But I'm pretty sure that's a, a reduction in my carbon footprint too. So again, it, it starts with the individual and to have that environment where you can actually allow people to come forward with those ideas is, is a really big part of how the organization will change and plan what it does.
0: It's a mindset switch completely, isn't it? Yes. It, Huge. It really is. Talking about a mindset switch, DE&I, that's a subject that you're quite passionate about, isn't it? It is. Tell us about that.
2: Something that has... Consciously, unconsciously, been in my mind probably since I've started my working life. So, I am chair of our DE and I council for Finer Aftermarket, and I've worked with a, a few external organisations recently. The question is: is why do you do it? Why do you um, choose to to chair this very important subject? And it comes for me from from two specific sources. Number one, but by no means the, the most important is past experiences. Um, I am from a very small town in the UK, in the, in the Midlands, I wouldn't say I had a sheltered life growing up, but I moved um, to um, a city where I was 20 years old. And that was sort of the start of a, a very rich cultural experience for me, seeing new people experiencing new um, diversity and background in, in, in people's approach to life. And that meant that the people I worked with and especially when I came to the world of logistics came from this humongously broad spectrum of, of something I had never even actually thought about before and I also in that environment saw that people still had prejudices and that were still biased whether it be consciously biased or unconsciously biased towards other um, people's beliefs, their skin tone, whether they're male, female, whether they're like Star Wars or Star Trek, you know. So it built up this experience for me and I never really cared where you were from, what you did, who you were, as long as you were good to people, that's fine. I wanted to take that and learn from some sort of the negative experiences and just really pass it on to people and, and, and teams. So that, that brings me into the DEI and i role that I have in Finia. And Secondly, when we, when we talk about barriers, I never really understood male privilege until recently. I never understood white privilege until recently. I never understood what privilege was because whenever it was talked about, be it on a LinkedIn post, be it in media, it actually made it sound like I'd had some sort of hand up to what I was doing. And, And for me, I always thought I worked really hard to get where I was. And I'm, uh, I'm not saying I haven't, but it was about the barriers and it was about the unconscious bias and at the senior we do unconscious bias training is mandatory. So we know actually now it's not a privilege, it's not something that's gifted to you, but it, it's about removing barriers for people who do actually have them. And the prime example I have at the moment is I have two daughters, they're both extremely fierce, but they're so different. If you cut me down the middle, one of, one of them is my slightly lazy perfectionist. I'll put in some effort and I know I'll get maximum results if I try just a little bit harder. And the other one is the, the, the extreme other side of me where I'm very meticulous sometimes. And when you get driven dabs at that, that functional level like we talked about earlier, she is so in the detail. She's got an engineering brain. She's actually autistic and she uses it like a superpower. Now, I also know that there is going to be a pulling where that may be a barrier for her, either with her own beliefs or where someone might see that and think, oh, actually, you know, we, we, that's not something we may want to deal with as a, as a company or a corporation. So I'm on a bit of a, uh, a, I want to say a one-man mission. It's not a one-man mission because I have an immense amount of support from um, my team, from Finia is an organization to actually try and change that perception of of diversity and inclusion. It doesn't need to be a hot topic. It needs to be natural and it needs to be organic. And that's what we're doing right now.
1: How do you bring more diversity into supply chain? And have you had any personal successes with that?
2: We, again, we're still on such an early journey as Finia, but I think across my career, there's there's a really easy way to do it is, you look at a CV sometimes if you're hiring, and I'm not talking about what you've got already within your company, but unconscious bias training is one thing. Actually testing yourselves in that arena is even bigger. And one of the things that's quite a hot topic on LinkedIn at the moment is the blind CV. You take the name, you take the age, you take the gender, you take everything away from the CV apart from the skill set, And then you're left with, out of 10, does this person score on a skill set perspective, does their personal mission statement actually say, yeah, this is a real good cultural fit. But beyond that, the cultural fit is is the huge thing. And that's how your diversity works. I believe in balance. And to me, it parts of my career I've i run away with ideas I've always thought I was right. And opening yourself um as a leader and being vulnerable, being a servant leader, taking every little thing you've learned along the way actually helps you with that diversity. Because if you're open to criticism, you're open to improvement. And if you're open to improvement, you're open to creating a better working environment for people. So that diversity for us, we've, we've got some good numbers when it comes to equality um, within our company. We have, in especially in my team, I have The it's okay to challenge, but also to be challenged approach and that creates a culture and when you create the culture, you can create diversity. So if I've done something wrong, I expect my team to come and tell me because they know that I am now that person who is like, you know what? Yeah, I did make a mistake and how are we going to rectify it, but also empowering your teams to make those choices as well And, and giving people who may have had that barrier in their way before the chance to operate at a higher level, the chance to contribute more, that in itself just creates diversity. And like I say, it has to be organic because you, you often see so many times where these initiatives and this diversity drive sales because it's like, okay, this is what we're going to focus on this month. And that might not even be relevant to anyone within your organization. So making it relevant, making it fun, making it interactive, is a huge part of driving that. And, and again, safe space in the outlet to be able to do it. It lets people thrive. It's 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 just like watering a plant.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's great.
1: I love the blind CV. That that's that's totally making everything level. That's a great idea. Anthony, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in specifically uh, with women in supply chain?
2: Yeah. So obviously off the back of our our D and I initiatives when I said we we look to keep it relevant. Yeah. One of the first obvious and immediate things to look at was working with the women in our team. So I have had a number of lead roles within my organization recently, and out of the female applicants, we've had 75%, success rate True. in applying to those positions. As an organization, we have 35% women throughout Finia. We have three women on the board and two on the exec. So we are making waves and we're going the right way. We're also part of the Boom Global Network, which is a, an online community for, for women in supply chain. It also provides them a platform, them a space to to discuss and to um, learn more about their peers, about the industries that they're working. And that allows us to go out into, you know, our own ecosystem. I actually say to our women in plan, our women in other offices, say, listen, have you, have you spoken to our friend here in Warwick? She's currently just taking on a lead role. She'd like to know more about manufacturing. She'd like to get that sort of cross-pollination of experience. And we provide almost like a, a mentorship program. So, and you can have, you know, we can have reverse mentors as well. So again, it really lets us drive a relevant part of the DEI through the organization, just through taking a womanly selection and saying, listen, to the future. So let's utilize that. Let's train you and let's, let's make you the leaders of tomorrow.
0: That's right. Anthony... Our audience is typically automotive, supply chain people. Given that those are the people who are listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them as we embrace this massive transformation in this industry? Specifically, let's be very targeted here in the world of aftermarket. You're facing all kinds of challenges, but give us one piece of advice, something that you would recommend given your tremendous amount of experience and the journey that you're on right now with Finia, one thing that leaders in supply chain in automotive could implement right now? What would that be?
2: I was asked an almost similar question to this the other day. And my the first thing that came to me was build your team and process like you're going to get hit by a bus tomorrow. Oh. And it raised and it raised a few laughs, it raised a few eyebrows. But we spend a lot of time being complacent. When things are going well, we think, right, it's going well, let's not change. Okay, it's the way we've always done things. And that itself is a death sentence because I look now to my team and I look and I think, you're going to be doing my job one day. I'm not afraid of that because I know that I will progress, I will move, I will retire, whatever. So I look at people, I think, you can be this, you've got the attributes, you're the next in line, you're the one who's going to take the throne. And then I look at that from a process perspective as well, from a systems perspective. And that's how we grow. So build your team, build your process, like you're going to get hit by a bus tomorrow, because when you've gone, you want them, your team, your company to be in its Best and most optimal position, and that mentality then needs to to go on through.
0: That is an excellent piece of advice, Anthony Emery. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been awesome.
1: Thanks, Anthony, for being with us today.
0: Are you ready to find the money in your supply chain? Visit www.autosupplychainprofits.com to learn how, or click the link in the show notes below.